You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prior to December 7, it was evident, even to me, that we were pushing Japan into a corner. I believed that it was the desire of President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill that we get into the war, as they felt the Allies could not win without us, and all our efforts to cause the Germans to declare war on us failed. The conditions we imposed upon Japan to get out of China, for example, were so severe that we knew that nation could not accept them. We were forcing her so severely that we could have known that she would react toward the United States. All her preparations in a military way, and we knew their overall import, pointed that way. Vice Admiral Frank E. Beatty Another version of what started the war with Japan. U.S. News and World Report, May 28, 1954. everybody, CJ here. Happy Pearl Harbor Day 2022. And this is going to be a fun-sized DHP episode, which means a relatively concise one, generally somewhere between a half hour and an hour long, which usually means that I'm doing something relatively contained, like sharing excerpts from an analysis of an historical primary source, or maybe telling a relatively short historical story of some type, or maybe explaining and analyzing, but in a relatively concise fashion, a particular concept or theory or something like that. And in this case, I'm going to be zeroing in on one particular primary source document that is of relevance to the Pearl Harbor attack and that is one very interesting piece of evidence that at least seems to point in the direction that the FDR administration was deliberately trying to provoke Japan in the year plus leading up to Pearl Harbor, and that it wasn't really a surprise attack at all when the Japanese did finally take the bait and attack the Pacific Fleet in December of 1941. Now, this document that I'm going to go over today is by no means the only piece of evidence that points in the direction of the 
argument that Pearl Harbor was, at least to some extent, a deliberate provocation or, you know, was preceded by extensive deliberate provocations by the United States. And that while FDR and most of his apologists ever since have claimed that he was completely taken aback when they lashed out at the Pacific Fleet in December of 1941, that in reality, it was not only what they were pretty much trying to provoke Japan into doing, but that they had all kinds of reasons to expect that that's what would happen. There is a ton of both circumstantial and documentary evidence that also points in that direction besides what I'm going to go over today. Now, I've been meaning to do a pretty long, in-depth coverage, whether it's, you know, one big, long, multi-hour episode or whether I break it up into like a mini-series, but I've been meaning for a long time to do some detailed treatment of Pearl Harbor. And unfortunately, it just seems like whenever I get to the latter months of the year, Pearl Harbor, of course, you know, being in December and for obvious reasons, you know, I want to put out Pearl Harbor coverage in December of whatever year I finally end up doing it. But it always seems like in the last few months of each year, I get real bogged down with a variety of different things and sidetracked by a bunch of stuff. And so I've never up till now had the time to really dig in, you know, read a huge pile of books about Pearl Harbor and really dig into the nitty gritty details and separate the wheat from the chaff as far as the evidence that challenges the conventional narrative about Pearl Harbor. And this year, I still haven't been able to do it. So who knows, maybe 2023 will be the year. I really wanted to try to do it in 2021. Because, of course, that was the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, and round number anniversaries are always, you know, a good time to put out historical material, looking back at a past event. But unfortunately, I was way too busy and sidetracked last December with things like moving and a bunch of other stuff I was dealing with in the latter months of 2021. So unfortunately, it didn't happen. This year, I've been sidetracked and sandbagged with a bunch of other things, a lot of it dealing with my still ongoing transition to full-time independent content creator. But I decided that I would go ahead and at least do a little fun-sized episode about one particularly interesting and potentially provocative document related to Pearl Harbor that raises a lot of eyebrows. It is something most commonly referred to as the McCollum Memo. So that'll be our focus today. But before I proceed with the remainder of the episode, I do want to give another 20 shout-outs to excellent individuals, thanking them by name for their contributions to my Indiegogo campaign, which, by the way, is still open. If you're willing and able to contribute to continue to help me in my work and in my transition to full-time content creator, and also to get the perks that you're eligible for there, depending on your level of contribution. So the next 20 individuals I would like to give profuse thanks to for contributing to my Indiegogo campaign are as follows. And as always, apologies if I mispronounce your name. It's not on purpose. Michael Santos. Zach Croft. John Bevel Aqua. Lisa Phillips. John Green. Gilbert Higuera. Greg Speller. Stephen Kelly, Dory Meyer, Adam Colby, Bjorn Schultz, John Clark, Jennifer Kudrowski, Mitch Gomolinski, Rachel Kennerly, Glenn Spengler, Daniel Higgins, John Kilmer, Eric Seifert, 
and Joseph Hurst. Thank you all very much for your contribution. And of course, links will be in the show notes if you want to contribute to the Indiegogo campaign, as well as links to my Patreon and Subscribestar if you want to support me and get benefits that way. So the primary source historical document that I want to talk about and share a bunch of excerpts with you from today is a document from ONI, the Office of Naval Intelligence, whom longtime listeners of this show know that I've long been extremely suspicious of and I think is a very, very underappreciated, under-scrutinized intelligence agency in American history. It's actually the oldest American intelligence agency. Not only is it, of course, much older than the CIA and the NSA and all the other things that came around either during World War II or in the Cold War, it's even older than Army intelligence, which, you know, went by various names and still exists, but has gone by various names over the course of its existence. Naval Intelligence, the Office of Naval Intelligence, or ONI, goes all the way back to 1882. So, by comparison, it's fully 65 years older than the Central Intelligence Agency. And some of you may be familiar with my kind of ongoing thesis, and by the way, I do eventually want to do an entire miniseries on ONI, because I think there's a lot to them that is not appreciated, and their fingerprints are all over a lot of things. But some of you may be familiar with my longstanding thesis that ONI, the Office of Naval Intelligence, is deeply involved in kind of creating or provoking or false flag staging or, you know, whatever it might be, depending on the particular war we're looking at, pretty much almost every war from the Spanish-American War of 1898 forward. And I'll try to remember to link in the show notes for this episode to my big episode from several years back now about the Office of Naval Intelligence's seeming involvement in sinking the USS Maine in Havana Harbor in 1898 and, you know, possibly, I believe, in league with Cuban operatives that wanted the United States to enter into the conflict going on at the time in Cuba between Cuban insurrectos and the Spanish state. I firmly believe that various ONI operatives, as well as Assistant Secretary of the Navy Teddy Roosevelt, and some other key figures in the U.S. government, such as Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, TR's good buddy, I believe that they conspired with Cuban operatives to blow up the Maine under false flag pretenses and then blame it on the Spanish. You know, exactly who knew exactly what about 
the plan? You know, did Teddy Roosevelt know all the nitty gritty details or was he to some extent a useful idiot? I don't know. But I think there is just a mountain of very suggestive circumstantial evidence that, you know, the the initial official story was, oh, the Spanish blew up the main. And then the sort of limited hangout that has prevailed for a long time since is, well, the main blowing up was an accident. And yeah, some opportunists like Teddy Roosevelt took advantage of the accident to blame it on the Spanish. And to me, that's a limited hangout. That's not the full truth. And I genuinely believe that the main was a false flag and that various people, I'm not saying that everybody who worked at ONI at the time was in on it, but for sure some key players in ONI were in on it. And I do think that Teddy Roosevelt, while he may perhaps not have known every single detail about it, I think he was in on it at least to some extent. And the reason I say that is because he was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and one of the key responsibilities of that position during Teddy Roosevelt's era and on, you know, well into the early decades of the 20th century at least, I forget when it changed, um, but for a long time, for at least 50, 60 years, one of the specific responsibilities of the Assistant Secretary of the Navy was overseeing the Office of Naval Intelligence. And anyway, in that long episode that I did years ago on the main, I go through a lot of the details about people connected to ONI that are then in turn connected uh, either to the main in the lead up to its explosion or people from ONI also who were involved with the cover up and the attempt to blame it on the Spanish. Please allow myself to interrupt myself. This is CJ with a special message for all you awesome listeners of the DHP. My work here is primarily funded through the generosity and patronage of awesome individuals like you. If you sign up to support this show via Patreon or Subscribestar, not only do you help me to keep doing this work and do more of it in the future, but you also get various benefits depending on your contribution level. Benefits to include access to the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. In addition to that, again, depending on your level of support, you may also have access to special bonus episodes available nowhere else. You may be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. Access to bi-monthly or even monthly live streams with me access to Dangerous History Lyceum lectures by me, as well as potentially, if you sign up at the Grandmaster Scholar Warrior level, membership in the monthly DHP online book club. So I hope you'll consider signing up to support my work if you're not already, and if you are, perhaps you'll consider upping your level of support to access more benefits. Links to Patreon and Subscribestar for the DHP will be in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and now let's get back to the show. But anyway, jumping ahead to Pearl Harbor, the key primary source document in question is dated 7 October 1940. So we're talking exactly a year and two months prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor. 14 months. And it was written by an ONI officer named Arthur McCollum. More on him in a moment. But the official designation of the document is OP-16-F-2-ONI. 
Since its exposure to the public, it has become commonly referred to as the McCollum Memo. And I will, of course, link to this document, which can easily be Googled up on the internet today in the show notes for this episode. And at the time that it was initially written and promulgated, this document was very, very secret. It was not available to the public at the time. It was initially written and disseminated amongst key people in the national security state of the time. Nor was it exposed to the public in the aftermath of the Pearl Harbor attack. And my recollection is, and I might be wrong on this detail, but my recollection is that it wasn't made publicly available until decades after the Pearl Harbor attack. I believe, if I remember right, that it wasn't made available to the public until 1995, 50 years after the end of World War II. Of course, when World War II veterans were elderly and starting to die off, when passions about World War II had long since cooled, when most of the people who were guilty of a potential conspiracy to deliberately provoke the Pearl Harbor attack were long since retired and dead. So, as is often the case, if the truth ever does come out, it comes out many decades, if not longer. Uh, from the events in question to where any of the people who might be held accountable are long since, you know, in the ground. And even a lot of the people who are old enough to have remembered living through the events in question are either elderly or dying off as well. And so, you know, no one really gets fired up the way they might have if the documents had been publicly available at the time or had been exposed, you know, within a few years after the events they're connected to. So, who was Arthur McCollum? The guy who was the primary author of this document that I'm going to be talking about for the remainder of the episode. Well, he lived from 1898 until 1976, and not only was he a naval intelligence officer, but he was also a legit expert on Japan. He had actually been born in Nagasaki, Japan, to parents who were missionaries living in Japan at the time. And he spent a lot of time in Japan throughout his growing up, including even spending a number of years in Japan after he graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy. So he spoke the language and he was very familiar with the country's culture and political system and history and whatever like that. So keep that in mind when we go over what he says in this 1940 document. But yeah, I think he spent something like three years living and studying in Japan after he became a naval officer and had graduated the Naval Academy. But at the time he wrote this document, again, October 1940, he had the rank of lieutenant commander, and he was working in the Office of Naval Intelligence. As of this recording, I don't know a lot of the details about his post-World War II naval career, but... I will say that he seems to have spent a significant amount of his overall naval career working in intelligence, and that during World War II itself, he actually held multiple titles, including the title of Director of Allied Naval Intelligence, Southwest Pacific, Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence, 7th Fleet, and Commanding Officer of the 7th Fleet Intelligence Center. And he would retire from the Navy in 1951. 
And I believe, if I remember correctly, he was at the rank of rear admiral upon his retirement in 1951. And he apparently, I don't know any details of this as of this recording, but apparently he did do some post-retirement work for the CIA in the early 50s. And of course, you know, anytime anybody is connected to the CIA, you have to be suspicious. You know, if it says they officially work for the CIA for a couple of years, you always have to be suspicious. Is that really the extent of their connection to the agency? Because the CIA is sort of like the mafia. You know, people have a hard time getting unconnected from it. And like I said, he lived until 1976. So who the hell knows what else he was connected to or involved with post-retirement. So, like I said, at the time he wrote this memo, McCollum was a lieutenant commander in naval intelligence, and he held the title of director of ONI's Far East Asia section. And in this document, McCollum, who again was a legit expert on all things connected to Japan, laid out a proposal for how the United States ought to approach Japan in kind of the Southern Pacific region. So McCollum's memo starts off saying, The United States today finds herself confronted by a hostile Germany and Italy in Europe, and by an equally hostile Japan in the Orient. And I guess I will from now on do verbal air quotes, so that you can distinguish between, you know, when I'm sharing the exact words of the memo, and when I'm summarizing something it says, and when I'm, you know, giving my reaction or analysis or take. And also, by the way, keep in mind the context. In October of 1940, things were looking pretty good for the Axis powers. Japan was doing seemingly pretty well in trying to conquer as much of China as they could at the time. And of course, in Europe, Germany had overrun France, had booted the British Expeditionary Force off the continent, and had not yet double-crossed the Soviet Union and attacked them. So at the time, You know, they were occupying much of Western Europe, other than a few of their allies and a few neutral countries they just left alone. For convenience sake, they were still at least somewhat like allies with the Soviet Union at the time. And while Britain technically remained at a state of war with them, like I said, they had been booted off the continent, and things were not looking very good for the UK and the British Empire at the time. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention before, the memo has... At the top, subject, estimate of the situation in the Pacific and recommendation for actions by the United States. Anyway, skipping down a bit to the second section of kind of the intro, the summary of the situation. McCollum writes, quote, The United States at first remained coolly aloof from the conflict in Europe, and there is considerable evidence to support the view that Germany and Italy attempted, by every method within their power, to foster a continuation of American indifference to the outcome of the struggle in Europe. So he's admitting, yes, the U.S. has kind of tried to stay away from getting sucked into World War II, and so far the Axis powers, at least in Europe, seem to really want to not provoke the U.S. into intervening in the war. Next, he writes, quote, Paradoxically, every success of German and Italian arms has led to further increases in United States sympathy for and material support of the British Empire, until at the present time the United States government stands committed to a policy of rendering every support short of war 
with the chances rapidly increasing that the United States will become a full-fledged ally of the British Empire in the very near future. End quote. Of course, I'll mention that at this time, the British were undertaking a massive covert operation in the United States designed precisely to pull America into World War II, just as they had done during World War I, which I covered in that episode on British propaganda in the U.S. during World War I a while back. And if anything, the British covert operation in the U.S. in the early days of World War II was even bigger than their covert operations in the U.S. aimed at public opinion in the first few years of World War I. In fact, the British operations in the U.S. designed to pull them into the war pre-Pearl Harbor have been described as the largest covert action in British intelligence history. Also, by the way, this is the period when FDR was being really deceptive and double-talking about his intentions regarding the war, where he would promise up, down, and sideways, oh, don't worry, American people, I'm not going to get you into this war, because, of course, he knew that a lot of Americans wanted to hear that. Well, at the same time, he would occasionally say, but we're going to take measures short of war and we're still going to pick a side and support them and give them weapons and guns and whatever, but we're going to stay out of the war. You know, this is the time period of the Destroyers for Bases deal, the origins of Lend-Lease and a whole bunch of other things where the U.S. government was claiming, hey, Axis powers, we're neutral. You can't mess with us while behaving in a very unneutral fashion. And it's very analogous in a lot of ways to the way the U.S. government has dealt with the Russo-Ukrainian conflict ever since it broke out, although the language is less, you know, pretending to be neutral than FDR's was regarding World War II prior to Pearl Harbor. And by the way, 1940 was an election year, and so by October when this was written, the campaign was in full swing, and in the 1940 presidential campaign, FDR was still sticking to the line, vote for me and I'll continue to keep us out of the war, just like Woodrow Wilson in the 1916 campaign. The document continues, quote, the final failure of German and Italian diplomacy to keep the United States in the role of a disinterested spectator has forced them to adopt the policy of developing threats to U.S. security and other spheres of the world, notably by the threat of revolutions in South and Central America, by Axis-dominated groups, and by the stimulation of Japan to further aggressions and threats in the Far East in the hope that by these means the United States would become so confused in thought and fearful of her own immediate security as to cause her to become so preoccupied in purely defensive preparations as to virtually preclude U.S. aid to Great Britain in any form. End quote. Wow, that's a hell of a run-on sentence. So he's saying, the Axis powers are doing covert things that are provocative to the U.S., and that are in danger of preventing the U.S. government from being willing and able to send as much help to the British as the U.S. government ought to. Continuing, quote, As a result of this policy, Germany and Italy have lately concluded a military alliance with Japan, directed against the United States, end quote. This, of course, by the way, would be the alliance under which Hitler, in a rare case of him keeping one of his promises, Hitler would cite this alliance with Japan, to justify his declaration of war on the United States within days of Pearl Harbor happening, which was just strategically a really stupid, unnecessary move for him to do. A guy who constantly broke treaties and, you know, pacts and agreements with other nations. One of the few times he decided to keep his word on something was when it was strategically really stupid to do, because, of course, had Germany not declared war on the U.S. shortly after Pearl Harbor, 
The FDR administration still, while they clearly after the Pearl Harbor attack, had no problem getting a declaration of war against Japan, technically speaking, they didn't have a good casus belli still against Germany as of Pearl Harbor. And so the Germans, you know, Hitler's government, unwittingly did FDR a political favor by declaring war on the U.S., And McCollum continues by saying that this alliance of Germany and Italy, now with Japan, that under this agreement, quote, the three totalitarian powers agree to make war on the United States should she come to the assistance of England, or should she attempt to forcibly interfere with Japan's aims in the Orient, and furthermore, Germany and Italy expressly reserve the right to determine whether American aid to Britain, short of war, is a cause for war or not after they have succeeded in defeating England. End quote. Now, just a bit further down, he does admit, quote, due to geographic conditions, neither Germany nor Italy are in a position to offer any material aid to Japan. Japan, on the contrary, can be of much help to both Germany and Italy by threatening and possibly even attacking British dominions and supply routes from Australia, India, and the Dutch East Indies. Thus, materially weakening Britain's position in opposition to the Axis powers in Europe. In exchange for this service, Japan receives a free hand to seize all of Asia that she can find it possible to grab, with the added promise that Germany and Italy will do all in their power to keep U.S. attention so attracted as to prevent the United States from taking positive, aggressive action against Japan. And then skipping down just a little bit, it cannot be emphasized too strongly that the last thing desired by either the Axis powers in Europe or by Japan in the Far East is prompt warlike action by the United States in either theater of operations, end quote. Now, skipping down a bit more, McCollum writes, quote, The threat to our security in the Atlantic remains small so long as the British fleet remains dominant in that ocean and friendly to the United States. In the Pacific, Japan, by virtue of her alliance with Germany and Italy, is a definite threat to the security of the British Empire, and once the British Empire is gone, the power of Japan-Germany and Italy is to be directed against the United States. End quote. So, there you go, he's making the argument of, well, if the Axis powers win on the other side of the planet, they're coming for Team America next, so, you know, we better kind of get involved now and take prompt action before that happens. The classic, we gotta fight him over there so that we don't have to fight him over here argument. Which morons are currently making still about Russia in regard to Ukraine. That if Russia is victorious in Ukraine, you know, Russian tanks are gonna be steamrolling uh, down Fifth Avenue in no time. Now a little further down, he does point out that it would be serious damage to the British Empire if Japan successfully attacked the British base at Singapore at the time, which, by the way, does happen roughly simultaneously with Pearl Harbor and is a disaster for British power in the Pacific. And then a little bit further down, McCollum writes, quote, While as pointed out in paragraph 3, There is little that the United States can do to immediately retrieve the situation in Europe. The United States is able to effectively nullify Japanese aggressive action and do it without lessening U.S. material assistance to Great Britain. An examination of Japan's present position as opposed to the United States reveals a situation as follows. So here he's going to talk about Japan's advantages and disadvantages 
relative to the United States in the Pacific theater. Quote, advantages. One, geographically strong position of Japanese islands. Two, a highly centralized, strong, capable government. Three, rigid control of economy on a war basis. Four, a people inured to hardship and war. Five, a powerful army. Six, a skillful navy about two-thirds of the strength of the U.S. Navy. Seven, some stocks of raw materials. Disadvantages. One, a million and a half men engaged in an exhausting war on the Asiatic continent. Two, domestic economy and food supply severely straightened. Three, a serious lack of resources of raw materials for war, notably oil, iron, and cotton. Four, totally cut off from supplies from Europe. Five, dependent upon distant overseas routes for essential supplies. Six, incapable of increasing manufacture and supply of war materials without free access to U.S. or European markets. Seven, major cities and industrial centers extremely vulnerable to air attack. Eight, weather until April, rendering direct sea operations in the vicinity of Japan difficult. In the Pacific, the United States possesses a very strong defensive position and a navy and naval air force at present in that ocean, capable of long-distance offensive operation. There are certain other factors which, at the present time, are strongly in our favor, which are a. Philippine Islands, still held by the United States. B. Friendly and possibly allied government in control of the Dutch East Indies. C. British still hold Hong Kong and Singapore and are favorable to us. D. Important Chinese armies are still in the field in China against Japan. E. A small U.S. naval force capable of seriously threatening Japan's southern supply routes. Already in theater of operations, F. A considerable Dutch naval force is in the Orient that would be of value if allied to the U.S. End quote. By the way, does anybody remember hearing about the important role that the Dutch Navy played in winning the war in the Pacific during World War II? Yeah, neither do I. Back to the document, quote, A consideration of the foregoing leads to the conclusion that prompt aggressive naval action against Japan by the United States would render Japan incapable of affording any help to Germany and Italy in their attack on England, and that Japan itself would be faced with a situation in which her navy could be forced to fight on most unfavorable terms or accept fairly early collapse of the country through the force of blockade. A prompt and early declaration of war after entering into suitable arrangements with England and Holland would be most effective in bringing about the early collapse of Japan and thus eliminating our enemy in the Pacific before Germany and Italy could strike at us effectively. Furthermore, elimination of Japan must surely strengthen Britain's position against Germany and Italy and, in addition, such action would increase the confidence and support of all nations who tend to be friendly toward us, end quote. Now, these next sections towards the end of the document are some of the most interesting. Quote, It is not believed that in the present state of political opinion, the United States government is capable of declaring war against Japan without more ado. 
and it is barely possible that vigorous action on our part might lead the Japanese to modify their attitude. Let me repeat that. It is not believed that in the present state of political opinion, the United States government is capable of declaring war against Japan without more ado. And it is barely possible that vigorous action on our part might lead the Japanese to modify their attitude. End quote. Hmm. What could possibly change political attitude and political opinion in the U.S. to be more amenable to declaring and going to war against Japan? Well, McCollum's going to tell us. And by the way, these are often referred to as the eight points of the McCollum Memo. It's his blueprint. Quote, Therefore, the following course of action is suggested. A. Make an arrangement with Britain for the use of British bases in the Pacific, particularly Singapore. B. Make an arrangement with Holland for the use of base facilities and acquisition of supplies in the Dutch East Indies. C. Give all possible aid to the Chinese government of Chiang Kai-shek. D. Send a division of long-range heavy cruisers to the Orient, Philippines, or Singapore. E. Send two divisions of submarines to the Orient. F. Keep the main strength of the U.S. fleet now in the Pacific in the vicinity of the Hawaiian Islands. G. Insist that the Dutch refuse to grant Japanese demands for undue economic concessions, particularly oil. H. Completely embargo all U.S. trade with Japan in collaboration with a similar embargo imposed by the British Empire. End quote. By the way, in the 14 months in between when this document was written and the Pearl Harbor attack, the FDR administration pretty much went down this list and did all these things. Think about that. Now, listen to this next sentence, or this next couple of sentences. This is immediately after the, the list of the eight points, A through H. Quote, If by these means Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. At all events, we must be fully prepared to accept the threat of war. Let me repeat those two sentences. If by these means Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. At all events, we must be fully prepared to accept the threat of war. And then that's the end of the document. It's just signed A.H. McCollum. He literally gives an eight-point list that says, yeah, this might actually provoke the Japanese into just blatantly attacking us, and that would be great. And we should be prepared for that. And then the FDR administration pretty systematically implements all of the things he suggested, which he himself said in this document might provoke Japan into attacking, and that would be great. How on earth are we to accept that the FDR administration, first off, that they just happened to do all the things on this list, that it wasn't, they weren't in on this. Because defenders of FDR and opponents of Pearl Harbor revisionism will say, oh yeah, you know, once this document finally got exposed, decades after the fact, 
they'll say, oh yeah, that document, oh, it doesn't really mean anything. That's an obscure ONI document. We don't even have proof that FDR himself and some of the other higher-ups in the administration even read it. You know, but I look at it and I go, okay, after the time when this document was written, they systematically did everything suggested in it. That's pretty compelling circumstantial evidence, right? Because what are the odds that they just sort of randomly happened to do all the things that were suggested in this document? I mean, first off, a reasonable person would expect if you did all these things to Japan, all of these provocative acts that McCollum listed, there's at least a decent chance they might lash out. And McCollum himself says so right after listing these items. There's then a summary at the end after McCollum's name that says, quote, One, the United States is faced by a hostile combination of powers in both the Atlantic and Pacific. Two, British naval control of the Atlantic prevents hostile action against the United States in this area. Three, Japan's growing hostility presents an attempt to open sea communications between Japan and the Mediterranean by an attack on the British lines of communication in the Indian Ocean. Four, Japan must be diverted if British opposition in Europe is to remain effective. Five, the United States naval forces now in the Pacific are capable of so containing and harassing Japan as to nullify her assistance to Germany and Italy. Six, and this, by the way, is the most interesting, in my opinion, of these, what are going to be seven points of summary. Six, it is to the interest of the United States to eliminate Japan's threat in the Pacific at the earliest opportunity by taking prompt and aggressive action against Japan. And then seven, in the absence of United States' ability to take the political offensive, additional naval force should be sent to the Orient and agreements entered into with Holland and England that would serve as an effective check against Japanese encroachments in Southeast Asia, end quote. So again, here's this guy who is a legit expert on Japan, knows the language, was actually born there, has spent years of his life there, knows the culture, the history, the politics. He would have known that the points he suggested would be likely to result in Japan lashing out, and he even admits it in the document and says it's a good thing if Japan lashes out. Because, as he said earlier in the document, U.S. political opinion is not yet ready to go along with declaring war against Japan. And then comments were added by a Captain Knox, another naval officer who looked at this document, and Captain Knox writes, quote, It is unquestionably to our general interest that Britain be not licked. Just now, she has a stalemate and probably can't do better. We ought to make it certain that she at least gets a stalemate. For this, she will probably need from us substantial further destroyers and air reinforcements to England. We should not precipitate anything in the Orient that should hamper our ability to do this, so long as probability continues. End quote. So he's not entirely on the same page as McCollum, but he's broadly agreeing with a lot of what McCollum said. Continuing with Knox's comments, quote, If England remains stable, Japan will be cautious in the Orient. Hence, our assistance to England in the Atlantic is also protection to her and us in the Orient. However, I concur in your courses of action. See, so he is ultimately endorsing McCollum's suggestions. Continuing, We must be ready on both sides, 
and probably strong enough to care for both. And by both sides, he means in the Atlantic as well as in the Pacific. So there you go. Now, defenders of the establishment FDR apologist narrative that are, you know, defending the idea that Pearl Harbor was not deliberately uh, provoked and that the FDR administration was genuinely totally caught by surprise by the whole thing, they will say, well, this document really doesn't mean anything because there's no proof that FDR definitely read it and, you know, or that some other key people in the administration read it. And okay, I guess technically there's not, you know, absolute 100% ironclad proof. However, I think there is a mountain of circumstantial evidence that FDR and probably, you know, much higher ranking people in the Navy and probably other key people in the national security apparatus of the time, perhaps including but not limited to the Secretary of War, the Secretary of the Navy, the Secretary of State, etc., probably some combination, if not all of them, read this document. And the first piece of circumstantial evidence is what I already mentioned before, which is they pretty much over the next 14 months did what it said. And the odds that that was just pure coincidence to me seem pretty low. And then to me, the other circumstantial evidence that just makes me very doubtful that the higher ups in the administration, including FDR himself, didn't, you know, see this memo or whatever or weren't influenced by it is that FDR was intensely interested in naval matters his entire life, and that he had long, like since his youth, since his school days, had been interested in naval affairs and naval history, and that he also, from very early in his life, since long before World War II really started in Asia, he had long seen Japan as a major threat to American influence in Asia and to things like the Philippines. And this goes back to his school days when he was going to elite private boarding schools and going to uh, Harvard University and so forth. That would have been the late 19th century, the heyday of Alfred Thayer Mahan-style navalism, saying that sea power is the key to a nation or an empire's greatness and that the U.S. should behave more like the British Empire to be truly great. And as corollaries of that, it often included portraying Japan as the great, you know, future threat to American power, especially sea power in the Pacific. And then there's the fact that FDR was Assistant Secretary of the United States Navy, which again, at the time, one of his main responsibilities included overseeing ONI, that he held that position for over seven years. Yes, during Woodrow Wilson's administration, in fact, for almost all of it, FDR was, like his distant cousin Teddy Roosevelt, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, as TR had been briefly under McKinley in the 1890s. Now, TR was only Assistant Secretary of the Navy for about a year, and he was able to play a key role in making the Spanish-American War happen. Franklin Roosevelt was Assistant Secretary of the Navy from March 1913 until August 1920, almost the entirety of the Woodrow Wilson administration, including all of World War I. So for over seven years, he held this position that included overseeing the Office of Naval Intelligence. And given the fact that by 1940, there were, you know, open hostilities happening in Asia and the Pacific from Japan, 
and that FDR was an expert on this stuff, had overseen ONI for over seven years, had always been interested in naval affairs, had long considered Japan a threat and whatever. And we now know had wanted to get the U.S. into World War II pretty much from day one, if not even before day one. The odds that he would not have read this document from the Office of Naval Intelligence in 1940, written by the Lieutenant Commander, McCollum, who was Director of the Office of Naval Intelligence's Far East Asia section, that FDR and other key people around him would have ignored this document in October of 1940, just to me seems preposterous. Now, am I definitively saying that this one document proves all of the revisionist takes on Pearl Harbor true? Of course not. But it certainly adds weight to many of them. And when you take this document and combine it with lots of other evidence, again, what I could make an entire multi-hour episode or even a miniseries out of, and probably will at some point in a future December... When you combine this document with all of the other documentary and circumstantial evidence surrounding the Pearl Harbor attack, you get to a point where to believe that the FDR administration did not believe that their actions in regard to Japan in the several years leading up to Pearl Harbor, actually even before the McCullough memo, but it just amped it up, that the FDR administration genuinely didn't realize how provocative all of their actions towards Japan were. That they really were not. They were just so clueless about Japan's politics and diplomacy and naval affairs and so forth. They were just so clueless. This guy, this president, who oversaw ONI for seven years, including World War I years. He was so clueless about naval matters, he had no idea that Japan might lash out, even though they had already done so in their history previously. You know, Japan kicked off the Russo-Japanese War in 1904 with, bing, 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 a surprise naval attack on the Russian fleet at Port Arthur, which is very reminiscent of the Pearl Harbor attack. The only difference is there weren't planes involved because... Naval aviation was not a thing yet in 1904, but in many other respects, the Japanese surprise attack on Port Arthur is very similar to Pearl Harbor. And to think that FDR, this naval history buff and expert, this guy who was assistant secretary of the Navy and oversaw ONI for seven years, and who clearly by 1940 was more than concerned with Japan and seeing them as an opponent and threat to the U.S. interests in the Pacific and Asia, that this guy wouldn't have looked at this memo is just ridiculous. That this guy would not have had good reason to believe he was provoking the hell out of Japan and that a surprise naval attack might result? It's just preposterous. To me, it takes a lot more suspension of credulity to believe the official narrative, the establishment narrative of Pearl Harbor, than it does to believe that A, the FDR administration was deliberately provoking what ultimately resulted in Pearl Harbor, that they knew they were being very provocative and were likely to provoke an attack from Japan. And not only did they not care if that resulted, they actually saw it as a strategic good thing because they wanted in on the war. And related to that second point of the establishment narrative, that the Pearl Harbor attack, when it happened, was a genuine, out-of-the-blue, crazy surprise to FDR and all the higher-ups in his administration. 
And again, this one document is not all of the evidence. There's tons more that points in the direction that I've elucidated here. But this is a fun-sized DHP episode, largely talking about one particular document. And so you'll have to stay tuned to some future December when I will give the big picture, you know, definitive case, including not just the McCullough memo, but all of the other evidence that points to that direction. So stay tuned. And in the meantime, happy Pearl Harbor Day.